Welcome to the Volrath Feed, the show that brings you into the world of commercial food service. With its many areas to talk about, it's never boring. And we say it's a big industry, and we try to bring a little insight into all of it for you. I'm your host, Rich Rupp, product trainer and chef at the Volrath Company. And joining me today, as always, is our producer, Justin Pearson. Hey, Justin. Hey, good day to you, Rich. How are things today? Excellent, as always. No complaints whatsoever. Right on. We got a good day going, so we plan to keep it that way, right? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, later on uh, today, we're um, going to keep things rolling in that uh, good day with our guest, who is our chef, Suzanne Daly. She'll be joining us a little bit later. She's a pastry chef and instructor at Madison Area Technical College in Madison, Wisconsin. So we'll get to hear a little bit more about the sweet side of the industry. We talked to chefs and the hot side savory. We got sweet side pastry. So always interesting, right? Yeah, we got to keep things balanced here, you know. I mean, got to make room for dessert. Make room or save room, one of the two. That's the problem (laughs) I think half the time is... You know, I, I'm a firm believer when I worked in a restaurant in Arizona, what we did is we had a cobbler that we offered as a dessert. We baked it fresh. So the hook on that was that we got you before you eat, you know, you ate your meal. So when you were ordering your entrees, we asked about this dessert option because it took 30 minutes to bake. And people would always say, sure, that sounds great. And then after the meal, you'd see this look on their face like, oh, no, we got that dessert coming yet, <laughs> right? So, But it was really a good way to get people to buy it because if you waited till the end, there's just dessert sales aren't there anymore. People are eating bigger portions. It's feel felt like anyway in that industry in that time. And uh, desserts were just, people didn't save the room. A lot of places do treat them like afterthoughts. And I would like to see restaurants offering it in the beginning, you know, as part of their, their appetizer selections. Which dessert would you like to start off with, sir? <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a good way to go. I would enjoy that, I think, probably too much. Oh, that's part of the problem with the desserts, the calories that they're in them. Ugh. Uh, yeah. A lot of it is just creative ways to eat butter. <laughs> I like that. That, that to me is butter. See, I could eat butter. I, I, I always tell people, and I, they think I'm joking, but I almost really, I'm not going to try it, so don't even go there. But like a <laughs> pound of bread, excuse me, a pound of butter and a loaf of bread, I, I think that could actually be a dinner for me. I could make a meal out of that. I, I remember growing up, there was a neighbor kid. Well, it was a friend of ours. And they had a, a, a younger sibling who was two years old at the time, and the kid would just grab a stick of butter and crush the whole thing. And I can't believe the parents allowed this to happen, but you know, it was like it was like 1990, and so I, I, I think that was just acceptable behavior at the time. Wow. <laughs> it's just fistfuls of butter. Just Whoa. Oh, man. There is a category in competitive eating of butter. You know, you know about Kobayashi and the brats yeah, and the hot yeah. dogs and that stuff, but there's a category of butter. Is that is that like a state fair thing? Because that... <laughs> they they do well at the Wisconsin State Fair. You know, we have deep fried butter at the Wisconsin yeah, State I... Fair. We've talked about that before. That is a creative way to consume butter. But, the, you know, there's all sorts of things. You know, like I think about um, lobster and crab. It's just another way to, to get butter into our faces. Yeah. <laughs> I'll Same take with it. corn on the cob, you know. <laughs> excellent, excellent meals there. But, you know, when we talk about the industry of, of hospitality in the restaurant industry, you know, it's such a large industry. And there are so many people that get their first job in that industry. And in a lot of cases, we've talked to a chef, uh, people in the industry, that that was your first job and you, you were needed on a night. You went into the kitchen as a chef or on the line, rather. And 
that became the start of your career. And a lot of people have gained a career out of that first job entry level being in the industry. It's amazing how big the industry is and the amount of people that work in it. I just had some quick stats here I brought up. In 2020, now this is projected, we're not going to get there with what's going on, but it was projected to be $899 billion in the restaurant industry for 2020. More than a million locations, 15.6 million employees. That's a big industry. And, and on this topic, no industry has been hit as hard with everything that's going on right now as the restaurant industry, right? Restaurant hospitality. Yeah, well, it, with the pandemic and the closures and all that, it just makes you acutely aware of how large and wide-reaching the industry is. Mm -hmm. it, it's affected everybody in some fashion. And then if you haven't directly uh, lost gainful employment, then you know somebody who has. Right. And the industry is very diverse. Do you know the restaurant industry has more minority managers than any other industry? More people in management positions that are minorities than any other industry. I, that's right? something I did not know. It's, and it's popular as we see the trend, and you can think about this as well. Younger people, they would rather spend money on an experience than on a thing in mm -hmm. a lot of cases. So what we're seeing is 63% of consumers would rather spend on an experience than purchasing an item. That's a statistic that the restaurant industry uses, and that's why you know people like going out and having that experience of dining with friends or family. And, yeah. and then another stat was the number of middle-class jobs that were provided in the restaurant industry, and they ranked that from 45,000 to 75,000, grew 84% between 2010 and 2018, hmm. more than three times faster than the overall economy. So the restaurant industry was booming. It was just cruising right along until this uh, COVID hit and then wham. But so a very big industry, a lot of employment, um, very diverse, you know, it's just a shame that's what happened, but it'll come back. We, we've seen things similar to it in the, in the past, and it will come back. So yeah. what would you guess when we talked about people getting their start in the industry? So if you think about restaurant managers, how many restaurant managers do you think started at entry-level positions in the industry mm -hmm. and then grew into a management role? What do you think the percentage of those would be? Percentage? Oh, gosh. That, that seems like... That's a story that you hear over and over again. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would say it's a pretty, pretty high percentage. Um, to the nearest, we'll say five, eighty percent. Okay, it was. It's ninety actually. The statistic wow. I see is ninety percent wow. of restaurant managers started in an entry level position in the industry. Huh. That's pretty cool. That is cool. Well, it's a reflection of what the restaurant hospitality industry is. It's for a lot of people, it's a job. And for many more people, it's a career and it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle, yes. Yeah. It might start out as something to do after school to make a couple bucks and it's just a job mm -hmm. and you don't really care about it, but it has the potential to grow into something that uh, you plan your entire life around. Oh, exactly. And that, we've talked about it many times. I think that people start it and they get a job, like you said, to make a couple of bucks and something happens. They're asked to step in and that's it. That's their start. So getting back to the to little quiz here for you, how many restaurant percentage-wise are single-unit operations? Well, you think about all the, the chains out there. Um, I would tend to say that there's plenty more single-owner operator mm -hmm. gigs out there. Uh, I'm going to venture 75%. You'd be pretty good. 70% of oh, restaurants are single-unit right. operations. 
It's, and think about it. There's a lot of people who open restaurants. They've got an idea. They've got some passion. They're going to give it a shot. And that didn't mean had to be large seating capacity. That can be hot dog stands. That can be just food service outlets, right? right. And somebody's giving it a shot. I think that was pretty cool. How many restaurants have fewer than 50 employees? So talking Ooh. small business, right? I bet that's high too. Because like you said, you think about mm-hmm. the hot dog stands and uh, food trucks and all these other operations where it's a mom and pop and some kids, you know, something similar to how you got your start or right. or uh, how Craig Culver got his start, you know. Um, exactly. I'd say that's a high percentage too. I'm going to say 80%, 85%. Yeah. 90% again. Wow. 90% yeah. of restaurants out there are just small little operations. That's why what was going on here with uh, everything, it's so important to keep these places running because each restaurant is employing uh, people and those are those are just jobs that people need and uh, less than 50 employees, There's most of them are well under that, I would say for sure. Rich, you and I, are, we're both dessert fans, but- What are you insinuating? Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, once again, coming back to we You're enjoy right. uh, not butter and it. sugar. <laughs> You're right. Uh, but what if you had to, to pick one, what would be your uh, go-to pastry? Ooh. Like if you had a lineup of everything that you liked- what what's the first thing that you're just gonna reach for? Oh, for me, you know, years ago it used to be, I suppose, the chocolatey, really, really rich cream. Uh, you could hardly get too sweet for me. Right. <laughs> there was, I got that from my mother. She's the one that you know on the on the corner of the cake where they put that big flower in the corner. <laughs> That's where you went for first. Oh, right? my mom. She could just take a spoon and eat that right off the top. That was her <laughs> her go to. So. When I was younger, I think that's where I was. But now I, I appreciate more of the uh, higher quality, cleaner, brighter taste. Right. Uh, that's kind of right. where I'm at. Like, it's same with like now that we've been doing with the ice cream and the, the gelatos and things at Volrath. Um, I tend to like those flavors on the gelato side that are, you know, that higher intensity, more bright, cleaner, crisper flavor than I like the heavy, creamy kind of stuff. So for desserts, uh, we were in France, and my wife made it a, a mission to try as many macarons as we could find. Yeah, so yes. I love those little tarts, fruit fruit tarts. I love those types of things. I go for more, and I'm okay with a smaller portion of that. You know, years ago, again, it was a big piece of chocolate cake or something mm-hmm. <laughs> I would go for. But no, no, it's no, it's a higher quality, brighter flavor, cleaner flavor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely feel you there. I I really appreciate when it comes to desserts and pastries in general. I like something that is uh, a high skill level to creating it, something that uh, has become more art than food almost. Mm-hmm. And and so something like a really good macaron, you know, that, you know, the look and the feel and the texture is all part of the flavor too, you know, oh, it's, right. as, as, as important as a flavor. So, right. yeah, those those type of things, I definitely feel you. And it's, and it's small, you know, I, I, I'm really on board with you there. Small, intense, and I like to try like a variety of them and mm-hmm. – and, not commit to one massive piece of chocolate lava cake or something and right that I feel terrible about everything afterwards <laughs> but don't get me wrong like a good cobbler or something in fall hits the spot too right oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. very much a seasonal thing yes you know, yes and you know you hit on something else and I always wonder about this like you look at some of the cakes that pastry chefs make for I think a lot of times it may be as competition but it's edible and Wedding cakes come to mind, right? Some of the beautiful wedding cakes. Yes. It almost seems a shame that you have, to, you know, that's you're going to eat that, but yeah, it's just well, so beautiful and the work that goes into them, tremendous. As 
humans, we sell ourselves short on dessert way too often. We settle way too often because you, you go and you're like, oh, I'll just run to the gas station. I'll grab a donut for lunch or whatever. It's what it is. You know, it's it's fat and sugar. And, you know, it's okay for what it is. But there's so much, there's so many better things out there that, that we could be eating and, and not having to break the bank. You know, there's, you hit up any of your local pastry shops and yeah, it's just so far superior than, than stuff you get in the grocery store. And it's, and desserts are supposed to be something special, you know? So mm-hmm. I, I, I really think that we need to take more care in what desserts we put in front of ourselves. Oh, that's, that'd be great advice, to be honest. Although, you know, sometimes the deck is stacked a little against us, too, though, because I think some of the things just don't taste. To me, I don't know if it's my age, like you, your taste buds change over time. But I remember things tasting different when I was a kid, like especially fruit. To yeah. me, it's just harder to get good fruit that has that bright flavor like it used to have, as, at least as I remember. So, And then, of course, like you said, we've got so many outlets now that can offer just sugar and fat and everything else. We kind of maybe shifted our taste to that stuff when we were kids. It was exposed to us so often, like certain brands of donuts <laughs> that are available <laughs> everywhere. And yeah, we use them on, for buns for hamburgers now. And, <laughs> uh, just too much of that stuff. Too much. Go back to more simple and make it a treat. We're flavor addicted sometimes and some yeah. of that stuff. Well, Fat that, addicted. It's true. I, I remember being younger and eating out was always a special thing because you know, with four kids, yeah, it just didn't happen that often because of you couldn't afford it all the time. So whenever you went somewhere, it was a really special thing. It was a real treat, and then that just kind of became the norm. We go out everywhere and all the time, and it just it's lost that special factor. Same thing with desserts. We should be able to space it out a little bit more. Well, Justin, we have been talking a lot about our favorite desserts and what we like, what we don't. And I think we got to bring our expert on. We, As yes. I mentioned earlier, we have Chef Suzanne Daly from MATC, Madison Area Technical College, right here in Wisconsin. She is the chef and pastry instructor at the college. So, Suzanne, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Now, I, I was saying earlier, I think we've, we may have met actually in person. You were in Volrath. You came for a tour of, of the facility. Yes, that was a, a really great experience to be able to see where uh, the equipment originates, how it's, it's molded. And, you know, anytime that um, in the industry you can see the beginning processes of something and, and to be able to use the end product is, is really quite an experience that I enjoy. We get a lot of people that come to Volrath, and uh, that's one of the things they always say is just seeing all the product there and how it's made. It's just kind of a neat way, and you never look at it the same way again once you've seen how it's made, right? Interesting. Absolutely. You'd certainly have uh, more of an appreciation for the tools that you have and and how you treat them. Um, The better you treat them, the better uh, results you have. Right, right. So, and again, thank you for uh, taking the time to join us here today. I know you've got to be just swamped right now with trying to get things ready for this school year. You know, Justin and I were talking a little bit on the front end of the show here just about the restaurant industry and how that's changed. But education, you're you're as hard hit as anybody is right now trying to get back up and running. So how, how are things going on that? Well, it's definitely a challenging time for all of us. Uh, you know, being a, a hands-on uh, technical program, that's that's how we teach. That's how students learn is by actually getting in there to do. And unfortunately, we're in an environment that we can't be um, 
uh, that close to each other. We have to socially distance and provide uh, as safe of an environment as we can for our students. So we're being very creative in, in coming up with methods that our students going, are going to be able to get the best quality education that they can and still be able to have that hands-on experience. So um, the group that we have teaching in the Baking and Decorative Arts program has really pulled together and uh, is doing some really creative, innovative of uh, things uh, so that our, our students have the best uh, experience they can. Oh, did you did you say decorative arts? I did. Um, our program was originally called Baking and Pastry Arts. Uh -huh. um, and about six years ago, uh, we changed the name to Baking and Decorative Arts. And that mm. came from... Um, uh, a shift uh, in the demand for what's required out in the baking industry. I'm sure that you are all familiar with the reality TV shows uh, that have really put a spotlight on um, decorating, um, whether it's mm -hmm. cake decorating or sugar work or chocolate work. And that's one area that we've really um, put more of a focus on in our program. We used to touch on it before when our program began, um, but that has become an area in the baking industry in which not only are our students able to focus more on the creativity um, that they may possess, but it also provides uh, more job opportunities, um, higher paying jobs within the industry um, that our students are able to, um, to really shine and be uh, uh, formidable uh, employees out in the industry. I'd love to see that shift there. But me personally, I think that even decorative is is a term that doesn't accurately describe what's going on because it's like you really are artists you're you're painting you know you're yeah. sculpting you know there's all these other aspects of uh, more traditional art forms that go into what what's happening in, in uh, a pastry kitchen but you know it's decorating i think of like oh i'm going to put this lamp over here and uh this color of paint looks good over on this wall and so much more than that oh absolutely and the different things i just mentioned those are just mediums that uh that we as decorators are able to use to uh to create those those visual um desserts uh visually appealing uh designs um that uh, our customers are looking for um and you know the the reality shows that have been out there have really been um, a double-edged sword for us. Um, we have been so excited to see that it has brought a, a new awareness to the baking industry. Um, but at the same time, um, people look at a 30-minute show and think, oh, that's so easy. I could do that. Anybody can do that. And then, Not me. you know, they, you know, some people have enrolled in the program thinking, oh, I can be the next um you know, decorating Food Network uh, star and realize, well, it's actually a lot harder than you think. And uh, so um, that's where our job is to educate people as to, um, you know, what goes into learning how to do that, what they show on a half hour show, you know, people have 20, 25 years experience to get to that point. Um, but that's why we're here. Now, well, I think a lot of people don't understand the cost involved in doing some of those pieces too. And, and then <laughs> they're, they're used to like getting a, you know, 50 cent cookie at the grocery store and instead of like paying, <laughs> you know, $10 for a cookie that's been, been done artfully. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and, you know, even uh, some of the, the decorated cakes that you see on TV, um, some of the 
the artists that do those. Um, you know, people aren't aren't aware that you know a cake that may serve ten people, um, you know, they won't even turn on their oven for less than a thousand dollars or less than five thousand um, dollars. Wow. You know, because there's so much more that goes into it. It's not about the number of servings you're buying. You're actually buying the sculpture, the artwork that goes into that particular edible uh, piece of piece of work. Mm-hmm. So if you're saying the, the trend now is toward the more artistic type things, is that a trend are you saying, or is that just what you're emphasizing? Is it something that's changed over time? And with that, is it also flavors that have t- changed over time? To- oh, that's a good question. Um, it's not so much that it's um, it's becoming more apparent now, you know, decorating has evolved um, over the years, um, just because more mediums are being used um, in decorating. Um, But it's something that um, as a program, we had not focused as much on, we were focusing mainly on the the traditional um, baking side of of the industry, um, but wanting to focus more, um, or I should say now we're about equal 50, 50 on baking, um, 50% on decorating just to be able to give our students a more well-rounded, um, education and training. Um, we have some students who, when the first day they're in the program, they say, yep, I want to bake bread. That's, that's why I'm here. That's what my passion is. That's what I want to do for the rest of my career. And they take their first decorating class and they are just, they fall in love. They know that that's where their passion is and, and vice versa. You know, you have some that say, I see all these, these reality shows and that's what I want to do. And they just fall in love with the pastry side. And so it's really about providing um, uh, a full range of uh, techniques and methods and um, experience to the students so they can really hone in on where they want to focus their their career. And I know I, maybe I missed it earlier and you're talking about the fact that the hands-on in the class. Are you in-person school this fall or are you going to be remote, a hybrid kind of thing or how are you, what are your classes going to look like? Um, we are going to be a hybrid. Uh, we are going to spend as much time as we possibly can in uh, face-to-face environment. Um, the time that we won't be face-to-face is when we would be doing our typical lecture. Um, so instead of lecturing in a classroom um, at the school, um, we're going to be doing that um, something called online live. So, um, you know, the students are all virtually in the same spot at the same time and we're lecturing um it's just remotely Uh, so that exposure is really important to us Um, we're a one-year technical diploma so all of the classes that our students are taking are directly related to baking and decorative arts Um, our students aren't uh, taking general education classes aren't taking uh, those types. So every single minute that we have with them, it's really important that we're able to, to get into the, the meat of baking and decorative arts. So um, that's where we are doing as much face-to-face as we can. Now, I know that the, the technical college there, you prepared in the past all the meals that were served to all the students at the college, Correct. Is that now changing some of the experience that the students are going to be able to get? Are you still going to do the meals there in that way that the students prepare them? So we have a really unique um, program in which uh, in the baking program, we have a bakery store. 
Um, so we provided a storefront um, for students, faculty, staff to come and purchase the items that our students made that turned out every day. Um, <laughs> that turned out? That turned out. And, and <laughs> that's really been um, quite a, a progression throughout the years that I've been at the college. And I tell the students, it's it's a huge compliment because people look at the bakery as they would any other retail bakery out there that they have certain things they really like that are their favorites. They want to see them every week. If their bread isn't out at 1201 when we said it was going to be out at noon, you know, where is my bread? Um, but, you know, we always have to remind the customer that this is a student lab students are learning and um, sometimes things just don't turn out and that's and that's how it is um, but it really is a great experience for the students to be able to have that um, that time sensitivity that you have to get your product out on time um, because the customer's waiting they also um, work the store um, so they get that frontline customer service experience and it's important. that's um, created some really great opportunities for our students. Not all of our students end up baking or decorating. Some of them end up managing bakeries um, because they really, really appreciated that customer service experience. But at the same time, they know what's going on in the back of the house and they can be that great liaison between the customer and the baker or the decorator. So um, that, again, is that broad range experience the students are getting. That's such a much safer option than like a barber school uh, <laughs> haircut, <laughs> you know, where, yeah. uh, you know, you're, you're really, uh, you're really taking a gamble going to one of those places, but uh, at your at your place, you, you only put out the, the quality stuff, though. So. <laughs> well, and you know, when, when you cut hair, hair grows back. It um, it's, you know, it's not permanent. And, you know, we tell the students, you know, it, it's just cake or it's just bread. You know, it's not a, a, a life or death situation. Um, you know, the, the students uh, are, are understanding that, you know, you're not always going to get it right. Um, and uh, But you need to always put out a consistent product. So if it doesn't turn out, um, that's... That's just the way it is that day. Well, even the ugly stuff can taste good, though. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it can. It can. And, and, you know, students ask that all the time. They said, well, it tastes good. Why can't we just put it out in the store? And that's where we're <laughs> teaching, you know, consistency in product, the expectation. Mm -hmm. And and uh, so that, that can be a hard lesson for them to learn sometimes. Well, speaking of lessons, what is the first thing that you drill into new students? If they don't remember anything else, what's the one thing you want them to take home? The most important thing is um, attention to detail, that the first time you see a recipe or even the 10th time you read it, see a recipe, you're going to read it through three times before you even begin to do anything. Um, the first time you're reading it through is to get the methodology. The second time you're reading it through is to uh, look at the ingredients. And the third time is looking at how you're going to put everything together. Um, because most people, um, you know, you need to segment it, um, and you know when you have uh, a situation where it's it's not your own kitchen, it's not your own bakery. Um, you're going through and and say you're making chocolate chip cookies, and you get to the very end, and you realize there's no chocolate chips. What are you going to do? Um, so it, it's a that's a process we we practice a lot. Do you do the mise en place in your class as well as you do on the mm -hmm. hot side? You teach that as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. very good technique, right? Absolutely, yes. 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 I was always going to ask you as well the um, 
the store, the, the storefront that you have, is that open to the community or is that only to the students? No, it's open to the public. Oh, okay. Um, so uh, we have our posted hours and, and we do have our, our loyal customers who come from businesses from around the college um, who take their lunch breaks at the school, um, who are taking advantage of the, the culinary students' lunch as well as our, our treats at the end. Or sometimes they eat our treats first. Uh, so... <laughs> We were talking about that before. That's got to be a shift that we, we'd like to try to see people to think about that side of it first, right? Yeah, you, you just bet. all too often you, you run out of room by the time it's dessert and you see lots of great stuff and you're like, well, I don't want to take this home and eat it later. You know, I'll just That's skip right. it. You know. <laughs> dessert first. Yes. So do you work with uh, Paul Short, correct? He was a mm-hmm. guest on our yes. show a little bit ago. Yep, and, absolutely. And how is that? You like? Uh, he's the program director, as I understand. Yep, he's the program director of the culinary arts program, and I'm the program director of the baking and decorative arts program. So we work side by side on a lot of different projects um, that are going on um, in the college, um, including the the chef series that we're so uh, grateful that Volrath um, sponsors um, at our uh, at our college. Um, and what's wonderful is not only are the um, do we have the chefs represented in the series, but we've had some fantastic bakers represented as well. And so we enjoy um, being a part of that and, uh, and having the, the baking side or the sweet side represented um, as well, because we have quite a few stories too. Oh, absolutely. It's been a great series hearing the, the stories of all the different chefs that have mm-hmm. been profiled on that. That's been yeah. fun. Oh, yes. Um, it's, it's amazing to hear um, where some of their... Uh, life stories have come from and and how they started in one spot and ended up where they are now it's 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 amazing some of the adventures that uh, that have resulted in in the success that they've had mm-hmm. so as somebody who doesn't have a lot of food service experience I, I was curious as to if there's any type of rivalries or anything like that between hot side and the the bakery is there any type of like <laughs> oh you, you know we're better than you or any type of jabbing at each other there you know that it's funny you say that um we we are a pretty cohesive team and you know we we glean information off of the culinary side as much as they glean it from us and you know we've had uh situations in which you know if a student um isn't great at their knife skills, some of the culinary instructors, you know, because sometimes we as instructors um, are kind of looked at as parents or like I'm the mom and, you know, (laughs) you don't always want to listen to your mom. So when you can bring in a guest instructor or someone else who can uh, uh, teach a technique or bring a different perspective in, it just really helps to enhance um, the program as a whole. And so I've had some of the culinary instructors come in. Um, I have done some um, demonstrating for the culinary students as well. Um, and that just really helps to um, to enhance the whole overall experience for, for all the students. Right. Like you mentioned, your pastry counter person, that to understand what happens behind is so valuable. So in the kitchen, understanding what's happening in the pastry area and on the line benefits both people that work in, in those areas. I will Absolutely. tell you, I, I do think pastry has the, and you know, this is one of those things where each each career or each job can always say, well, yeah, well, we have this, and you kind of go back and forth. But I do think that the working environment and the pastry side 
is is it typically a little cooler not maybe <laughs> as humid you know hot side can be pretty hot that that's standing over those 10 burner stoves all day is is a bit of heat the pastry here i always think that's a little cooler and you have to for your ingredients right you can't have your high humidity well um, it would be wonderful if we were cooler, um, but a oh, lot of see, times, <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lot of times we're baking bread in ovens that are at 500 degrees, and so uh, those will heat up uh, an area pretty quickly. Um, but we do have a lot of challenges when it comes to heat, um, and in any baking environment, um, especially when you're working with chocolate um, or any type of sugar work, because both of those are affected not only by heat but also humidity. Mm -hmm. And when you're baking bread and you've got that steamer going in that DAC oven, um, you're producing a lot of steam, a lot of humidity as well. So those two don't always uh, uh, fit well together. Um, so we have to create an environment to kind of pull those as far apart as we can um, so that both are able to be successful. You, know, you mentioned something there, and if you could solve this for me once and for all, I've had debates on this, but the steaming in the oven is to actually make the crust crispier, correct? It yes. keeps it cool and it can brown fast or longer and get crispier. Yep, that's exactly right. Um, whether you have steam in your oven or some people will put, you know, pans of water in the oven just to be able to produce that steam. And that's hmm. that's what, exactly what it is, is to, to build up that crust on the bread. Uh, now I know for sure. I got it. <laughs> that's interesting. Yes. Didn't yeah. know that one, huh, Justin? No, I did not. So I'm, I'm going to have to give that one a try now. <laughs> but so I, well, another question about that kind of stuff is so if you're a chef and you're standing over a stove and, and you're making a sauce or whatever and you're, you're adapting and adjusting a recipe on the fly and in real time to whatever you'd like and however your tastes go. But when you're a pastry chef and, and you're working with, you know, recipes with exact measurements and stuff like that, how do you go about modifying a recipe if you think it needs tweaking? Does it is it just a process that takes a lot of time and trial and error, or are there tricks to that? Um, a lot of it depends on what ingredients you're using, and you know, a, a large portion of time that we spend with our students is teaching them the science of of baking and the mm. science of pastry, um, understanding how acids react to um, some of the other ingredients, or if you have to change the pH in in your recipe um, so that you you have a, a smooth um, a smooth curd or whatever whatever it is that you're making. Um, and once you understand the different elements of the the recipe or what you're making, it's much easier to be able to tweak that. Um, but just as they Say on the culinary side, you need to be tasting every single time you add another ingredient. Um, it's the same, you know, in the baking side, um, that every time you're adding something, you need to be tasting it to see where where you're at. Um, baking uh, is much more precise uh, when it comes to ingredients than cooking is, um, but just as important as understanding what in what role each ingredient has in the product and knowing how much you can tweak before uh, your product won't bake evenly or it won't rise mm. or whatever the case may be. So it's really a lot of trial and error um, and not being afraid to, to experiment and have those trials and error um, to be able to, to make that better product. Yeah. It's just yeah, kind of a case of knowing the rules first before breaking them. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes. Right. What the results will be yeah, when exactly. you break them. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> so in, in the hot side, we have the, or the classical 
French mother sauces. Do you have something like that in in the pastry side? Is there a, a mother sauces or mother pastry or something like that? Is there an equivalent to that? We have creams and curds. Creams <laughs> so, and curds. Creams and curds. So you have your traditional pastry cream, which is more of a vanilla-based custard um, that you can add flavor to, whether it's a fruit flavor, a chocolate, that type of thing. But then you also have your, your citric curds. Most people just think of uh, lemon as your curd that can be added as a filling, but mm-hmm. you can truly take almost any citrus and, and use it in, in a curd uh, scenario. So once you know how to make that curd, you can really develop a full line of, of uh, products that you can use in, in, mm. your, uh, in your baked items. You got me thinking about these curds. What's a, what's a favorite curd of yours that's not a lemon or a citrus? What's another citrus that you like in curd? I really like an, an orange is a very subtle um, curd. Um, it isn't as as bright as the lemon is, but it just is a really nice, smooth, um, smooth flavor. Um, but I really like my lime curds too. Lime curd. Lime right. is a really nice one. Um, a grapefruit curd is also one that some people don't think about um, that can pair really well with uh, with other uh, components of a dessert. So if you got lemon curd down, you just substitute the other in equal proportions of what lemon would be, pretty much, or is there a tweak to that? Typically, a lot of that will go by taste as well. Okay. Um, and again, it depends on what time or what part of the season you're getting your fruit as well. Um, depending on if it's a beginning of season, end of season, you're going to end up with uh, different um, tang to your juice um, sure. from those different fruits. Okay, I got something that's this been grinding me forever like <laughs> and, and it's frosting okay <laughs> yes so you, you get a, a cake and uh you buy it from a supermarket or something like that and it looks great you know it's like all right i'm really gonna enjoy this big slice you go for that that big flower corner piece <laughs> and you take a bite and you're just like Bleh! and it just tastes like you just shoveled a spoonful of crisco in your mouth yes. or, you know, why is it and what is it that makes a quality frosting that's light and airy and delicious and doesn't leave your mouth feeling coated with oil. Uh, and, and then why do other people, don't, why do they choose to not do it well? <laughs> that's a great question. Um, you're referring to what's called American buttercream, which is the full-on shortening. Um, and a yeah. lot of places will use that as their primary frosting because um, it gives you a white frosting because shortening is white as opposed to the the much more flavorful frostings um, such as your french or italian meringue buttercream that as the name implies it uses butter Um, but butter is yellow and so that tends to give a different um, color to your frosting Um, and typically um, shortening um, from a price point perspective um, is cheaper than butter. And so it really depends. And and shortening has a a higher melting point than butter does. And so if you have a a cake that you know is going to be sitting out um, outside at a a wedding reception that's outdoors or a birthday party that's outdoors, um, and you can't control what the temperature environment's going to be, uh, many times uh, decorators will choose to go with that American buttercream because it's going to be more stable than your buttercream that has actual butter in it um, that's going to melt much quicker. 
Mm. So from a, uh, sometimes a, a, a reputation uh, aspect or a, a cost savings aspect, um, that's why that type of frosting is used. Um, but as you said, buttercreams uh, that truly have butter in them are definitely uh, much more flavorful and uh, uh, they're, they're my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, I guess while I'm still on the topic of, of uh, cakes and frosting, and I, I'm not sure if you tackle this type of area, but you see a lot of uh, owner operators out there that are uh, taking requests that are copyright infringement. Mm-hmm. And how does uh, somebody deal with that? You just like, oh, it's it, it's a Marvel cake. It's you know Iron Man, whatever. I'll just make this. Uh, nobody's gonna see it, or you know whatever. Do people actually get prosecuted, or, or have you heard of any cases? And What's what's the legal aspect of it? What's the liability from somebody to do that? And is it worth the risk? <laughs> so um, I I've had my own cake business for over twenty years as well. I do specialty cakes, um, and it worked out just fine before the um, the birth of social media, mm. um, because you know back in the day nobody had an environment in which they could share photos of birthday cakes or whatnot that could have that that uh, copyrighted uh, photo on it. Um, But now that everybody's posting pictures, um, some of these larger corporations, um, such as Disney, they have uh, attorneys that their their entire job is spent scanning social media to look at who is using their likenesses um, on products. Um, And if they find someone who has, um, these larger companies will um, send a cease and desist order. Um, And if you don't, follow that, then um, then they can take further legal action with that. Have you heard of anybody getting getting nailed that way? I know um, Disney can be ruthless in that, they in that area. Yes. Um, the fellow decorators that I know have not chosen to go down that path of, um, of using copyrighted materials. Um, so uh, I have not seen the, the process of going to the full legal action on that. So... I always want to know, when you have technical training, just because a student wants to be something, they want to be a barber or a hairstylist or a baker or a chef or a mechanic, whatever it is, where mm-hmm. it's a skilled position, you have those students that come in and the, the heart is there, the mind is there, everything is there, just not the talent. Mm-hmm. Do, you have, do you have those situations where you have to say to a student, yeah, or do you just try to find the best you can for them or how does how does that work do you have any stories where you've had students where that has happened yeah you know that that happens um you know you you can have the best intentions and and you want to do something and you know it's tough especially in this profession where it's very tactile whether it's rolling um dough or shaping buns or or decorating which which is very tactile if if you don't have that coordination or it's just not coming together for you we really focus on the things the strengths that the students come out of it with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've had to have that conversation where, you know, you may not get the job in the industry that, 
that you wanted going into this program. But look at what you've taken away um, from this program that will help you in no matter what you choose to do in your life. Um, you know, you've learned time management. You've learned organizational skills. You've learned how to deal with customers. Um, you, you've learned to work in a team. You've learned, mm -hmm. you know, all these different other aspects that it doesn't matter what profession you choose. They're going to help you to be successful no matter what path you, you go down. Sure, they'll, they'll, mm -hmm. they can still work in the industry and still enjoy the, the things that they like about it. It's just maybe they're not going to be the pastry chef at the Ritz-Carlton. Right. right, and, yeah. you know, we've, we've had that where, you know, they really wanted to, to bake the bread, but it just, it just wasn't coming together for them. But they ended up going out in the industry and being a really great manager um, mm -hmm. and managing a, a bakery. So um, everybody just has to find their strengths within, within the industry, um, or they find out that, the baking world or the decorating world isn't what they thought it was going to be. Um, and, you know, people um, don't understand sometimes that um, the baking world is a very physically uh, stressful job. You know, you're lifting 50 pound bags of flour and sugar regularly. You're standing on your, on concrete for eight hours a day, or, you know, that's, that's a slow day. Um, you know, they're, they're long hours. Um, you know, you're going into work sometimes at Early 10 o'clock at yeah. night. Um, and you know, not everybody's cut out for that. Um, and, uh, so we we try to find where their strengths are and really help them discover how they can use that to the best of their abilities in the future. With the resurgence of the popularity of cooking at home mm -hmm. and online Pinterest recipe sharing and cooking shows and all that, have you seen a shift in your student demographics? I've noticed over, well, actually over the years um, that two, two kind of phenomenon that are happening. Um, first of all, we're, we're developing a, a group of students who did not grow up baking, did not grow up cooking. And so when I first started teaching, you know, they already had that base knowledge and we could mm. just start running with learning the, the new, more complicated skills. But, um, you know, many years ago, I had a student who the first day was very excited and I gave them the recipe and we went through it. And later she came up to me and said, um, how do you crack an egg? 101. Okay. So, and she wanted to own a bakery and knew that that was where she wanted her passion to be, but had never, had never baked or, or cooked before. And that was a real eye opener to me. And that made me really step back and realize that I can't assume that my students know any aspect of baking. And so we've mm -hmm. really had to kind of take a step back and focus more on some of the fundamentals and not assume that our students already know how to do the basics. Um, the other, um, uh, phenomenon that we have is that um, we're getting a, a lot of students who um, this is their second career. So parents wanted them to go get a four-year degree. They did it, went out into the job force, um, hate it. <laughs> it wasn't what they really wanted to do, but now they have they found their voice and realized, nope, I'm not going to do that anymore um, and have a tremendous amount of student debt 
but they don't care. They want to do what they're passionate about now. And they um, turn out to be some of the most fulfilled students um, that we have mm. because they know what they don't want to do. Um, and they're really focused on, on doing what they love. I think we had a quote yeah. on one of our guests, do it for the love, not the money. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah exactly. Um, but Justin, to talk a little bit more about more people cooking now, are we finding a difference? Um, I'm finding that more students coming in um, are choosing to educate themselves more as well. They, are, they know more about where the ingredients are coming from, where they want their ingredients to come from. You know, how much are we sourcing locally? Um, you know, what role that plays? You know, is the wheat that we're using in, you know, the flour that we have, is it being locally sourced? Um, mm. And so we are having a much more educated group of students because um, of where their their passion lies in in that type of realm as well. Yeah, well, it's staggering the amount of information you can get about your product nowadays. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and not all flowers but, are alike. <laughs> yeah, so like for, for students, like in traditional higher ed settings, if you come ill-prepared for a math class, you're going to get put in a 900 level class or whatever. So for a student who doesn't know how to crack an egg, uh, is there a kind of like a catch-up or remedial classes, or do they just have to work extra hard to get up to speed? How, how does that work for them? <clears throat> so we really work to try to pair some of our students. We have some students who who have those those skills already, um, trying to pair them with students who, who need a little help um, so that they can help each other through the process. Um, we do that for a little while, but then there is the expectation that the ones who, who don't know as much that they're going to work a little harder to, to bring up to speed um, so that everybody can try to, to move forward at the same, at the same pace. I like that approach. Yeah. A little bit of student mentoring going on there. Absolutely. Which is ben it's beneficial for both students, mm -hmm. you know. It's the ones that are helping out are, are definitely gaining some there because they're eventually going to be in a position where they're going to have to train or teach other people. So the more you can build up that skill set, the yep, better. Yeah, absolutely. When you mentioned earlier the sustainability and things, are you growing some of the items that you're using in your class? I think of things like you know, mints and things like that for sure. Because you think a hot side, it's easy with the vegetables and that. But are you... Do you have a little garden that you grow things right there for your locally grown or do you source things locally? And if not, what would you put in your garden? <laughs> yeah. Just trying um, to think on the hot side, it's, you know, that's easy. <laughs> Vegetables, real simple, but I don't know about pastry. We we don't, um, we don't at this point, and I think it's more the, the logistics of, of having that, that garden setting where, um, where we're at. Um, but uh, if, if I could, I would love to have our own raspberry bushes, our own blackberry bushes, being able to do more of the fruits locally um, that we, uh, that we use in, you know, our danishes, our, our croissants, different things like that. That, that would be a wonderful experience to, to show the students. But uh, at this point, we're not, we're not there yet. Well, it's like cracking the egg. Some students may not know what a raspberry plant looks like yeah. and how you, right? Yep, Some exactly. of those things is you just don't know. Exactly. And we were talking earlier as well about the, the taste of some of the fruit. And it's, I think it, I don't know if it's changed over the years, or my palate's just changed, but I remember fruit tasting differently years ago. And I don't know if it's, again, the, the time of the pick or what it is, but just to be able to just show them uh, how you harvest a plant at the peak of ripeness and what that means versus the stuff you can buy in the store that's been harvested days or weeks before. Yeah. Uh, just yeah, not as fresh. 
And that's one thing, too, that we really um, spend a lot of time on is developing our students' palettes. Because, um, like as you mentioned, some students may never have tasted a certain fruit before or um, a nut that we use or know what the difference between an almond and a walnut is. I grew up on a farm and we, we had five gardens and we had our raspberry bushes and, you know, everything, you know, we, we were locally sourcing. Um, and sometimes it's, it's hard to imagine that not everyone had the luxury of, of being able to be that close to their food. And so to give the students that experience as well, we have a chocolates class um, that I teach that I bring in, you know, 10 to 12 different um, percentages of, of cocoa in the chocolate. And I always ask the students, what's your favorite kind of chocolate? And 90% of the students will raise their hand and say milk chocolate, because that's what they know. And so we'll taste anything from a white chocolate all the way up to 100% cocoa mass. And that is probably the biggest wake-up call that I ever see <laughs> in the students is, is seeing their expressions, but then having them develop their palates so they have a better appreciation for what dark chocolate is and how it tastes and and uh, the the different um, flavors that you can get out of that, and it's not just a, a piece of chocolate. With that palate training, do you have them taste mistakes so they know what to look for? Like when something goes wrong, it's like okay, you look out for this because this is what happened uh, chemically to this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have a, a taste evaluation um, after everything that they make, even if it is bad. You know. It's very clear it didn't turn out. Um, as long as it's cooked th all the way through, they're going to taste it. <laughs> We're not going to have them taste raw product. But they, that's part of that development. And you want them to be able to pick up if they left salt out of their bread or if they put too much salt in their cookie. You know, being able to pick up those little nuances of flavor and, and how that affects the end product. Um, yeah, that's a very important part of our evaluation every day. We've been talking all this sweet stuff, <laughs> and I feel like savory pastries have really been getting uh, the shaft here. So can you tell me a little bit about that side of it uh, at the school there? And maybe some, what are some of the, the student favorites or your favorites when it comes to savory pastries? We teach the students um, how to make pizzas, breakfast pizzas. Um, that's, you know, all part of the, the breads, all part of the leavening, um, learning how to make the, the dough one day, use it the next day. And the students really enjoy that side of it. They also make uh, focaccia. They make ciabatta bread. Um, and incorporating different herbs and spices and vegetables within the, the bread side of it um, is really, really a favorite of the students as well. We have even had the students uh, do savory uh, French macarons, which traditionally those are the little almond cookies that have the filling mm -hmm. in the middle, uh, mm -hmm. which is... That rich and mice favorite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Good. Um, uh, each year we have the students do a dessert buffet as one of their final capstone projects. And uh, we encourage the students, again, to think outside of the box. And just an example, one year, the student uh, for the macarons, they did uh, they did a, a tomato-based macaron cookie that mm. had the, um, the basil and the uh, mozzarella filling and then had uh, a drizzle of balsamic vinegar on top. Um, so a oh, caprese awesome. uh, macaron, <laughs> which was 
divine. That sounds incredible. Oh my <laughs> it was, gosh. It was amazing. I need one of those. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it really, we really want them to focus on, you know, here, you know, the basic method, what can you do with this? And uh, it's always mm-hmm. exciting to see where they run, uh, run with that. That's interesting. Very neat. That they can do that, right? And, and come up with something like that that's way off what you'd normally think. And, and we we have our hits and we have our misses. Oh, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> what are some, what are some of the misses? I, yeah, you can't go there without, you can't leave me hanging. I need some, I need some of the misses. <laughs> they, <laughs> tasting that and, and the different uh, strengths of some of the uh, extracts or, or some of the, the flavors that you put in there, the, the students have learned rather quickly that uh, to know when when to call it and, and just start over. <laughs> just start over. Give up, uncle. <laughs> I have two questions that just again for my personal education on this. You mentioned earlier white chocolate. Is that a fact? Do you, do you, is white chocolate actually classified as chocolate? In in my mind, no. Okay, <laughs> it's good. It's not. Um, you know, it's, it's classified as chocolate because it has the component of cocoa butter in it, which is derived from the the cocoa bean um so from a a technicality yes it is classified as chocolate but not not in my not in my opinion (laughs) good i'm glad to hear that because that's always been my position and then i was just interested we mentioned some things and um and right now when you mentioned justin people baking from home the hot item is yeast right Mm -hmm. so a lot of people have had to sub what you normally have used for yeast for other yeast and i was going to ask you do you have a favorite? Is it is it necessary to get fresh yeast or is, is instant or how do you look at yeast? Through this crazy time that we're in right now, yeast has been so hard to even mm-hmm. acquire. And so when I talk to people about yeast right now, um, I tell them just to make their own starters that don't require any yeast at all. All you need is flour and water. And you let the natural yeast that's in the air react with the water and the flour and uh, create your own. You know, Some people will use grapes to create their yeast for their starter, but that becomes a little bit more technical when you want to keep it as, as basic as you possibly can. Just your, your flour and water is all you need. How do I control how much of that then I mix into my finished good? How do I know what I'm going to get for a result? That's your trial and error. Ah, okay. Yep. All right. So I got some. I, I used to live out west, way high up in the Rockies. And whenever you see anything bacon related, uh, it always varies at higher elevation. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess I could have looked into it. I could have Googled it. But I just always wondered why the atmosphere has a different effect on baking uh, at those at elevations like that. Yeah, it's that pressure. Um, many times when, uh, you know, at the, at the uh, elevation that we are right now, it works well for 95% of the recipes that have been formulated as far as how much leavening you need to add to your recipe so that it rises correctly. But when you're at those higher elevations, it needs a little extra oomph um, to get it to rise. And so yeah. that's why you have to make those adjustments in the leavening. Yeah, it was it was always a real pain to get uh, 
to get it to rise properly. And then I'd buy like high elevation flour. And I don't even know if that is a thing. Does it do anything or? <laughs> um, it can, it can. Typically high elevation flour is similar to um, the self, well, around here we call it self-rising flour, that it has some leavening that's already put into the flour. So it's given it that little extra boost um, okay. that it needs uh, to rise. Boy, we've been learning a lot here today, Jess. I know. I know. It's like I'm, I'm going to school right now, getting a free education here. There's a test later. You know what? Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. All right. Wait a minute. We'll just keep cycling through all the uh, the instructors and the, the department chairs down at MATC. We'll have, we'll have to get an honorary degree at yeah, the end of this. Right. <laughs> Quite an education. Okay. Well, with that, Suzanne, uh, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk with us today. I know you're you're super busy being a non-traditional year. I, again, I know you're, you're quite busy, so thank you so much. It's been really interesting and a pleasure to chat with you. And, of course, as we said, Justin and I have learned a lot. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much. <laughs> My pleasure. Uh, we wish you all the best for this, this coming year. Thank you. Any last thoughts uh, for our listeners on anything that you're seeing or hearing or, or any, any potential students, something you'd want to say to them? <laughs> yeah, there we go. You know, I- don't be afraid to try is what I would say. You know, so many people are trying new things and baking things they'd never dreamed of, of baking um, if the world was any different than it is right now. And I think it's wonderful that, that people are getting out there and and uh, exploring um, their tastes and, and trying new things that um, it's opening a whole new world uh, for them. And I'm, I'm really grateful they've had that opportunity. If there's a silver lining to any of this, um, it would be that. Sure. Uh, Suzanne, so the other thing we like to always ask our guests is that uh, we know going through our careers, our lives, that we've had those people that have influenced us in one way or another. And sometimes it's a quote. Sometimes there's something that they, they, they always did or said. But do you have anything like that that stuck with you where you just remember it as, as something special, a quote or something from someone? I do. Um, from an educator's perspective, my favorite quote is, um, when you show up authentic and imperfect, you create the space for others to do the same. Um, and from uh, a baker and decorator's perspective, uh, my quote is, it's just cake. It, it's, <laughs> it's, just cake. Yeah, it's just cake. <laughs> it'll, it'll eat and then make another one, right? That's right. Yeah, <laughs> and if it doesn't turn out, it's just cake. <laughs> there you go. Oh, excellent. Perfect. And uh, I like them both. So thank you so much for that. <laughs> You're welcome. Justin, any last thoughts from you today? You bet. I would once again like to remind everyone to please hit that subscribe button. Never miss another moment with a chef or industry professional again. And we would also like you to share it with your friends and give us a review. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know what we can improve on. All right. Thank you for that. And to everyone, I would just also say if you have any thoughts or comments about a topic we've covered on the show or have ideas for a show, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us and let us know at volrathfoodservice.com slash the feed. And as always, just don't worry about the other guy and what they're doing. Just focus on what you do best and no one's going to beat you. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you have a great week ahead. Until next time, take care. <laughs>